13 million Londoners have to wake up to this. And murder, and all brain, and rape. And I'm sitting in this bloody shack and I can't cope with Whitmore. I must be out of my mind. No one can doubt that cafes, not cafes, are a cornerstone of culinary life in the UK. But what even is a caf? Are they any good? Does the food even matter? Or is it all about the kinds of spaces that they create? You're listening to The Full English Podcast, the show that sees the world through food. As always, you can show your love for the show by sharing on your socials and with your friends. And to help make this show possible, give us £3 a month over on patreon.com forward slash full English. This show is made by me, Lewis Bassett. Mixing and sound design is from Forest DLG. Isaac, Felicity, welcome to The Full English. Thank you so much for joining me on a glorious day. And uh, we're trapped in my little flat. So I appreciate you guys making the effort to come um, speak about CAFs with me. Felicity Cloak, for those who don't know, is a a Guardian columnist and an author um, of several books, more than one, but most relevantly, uh, Red Sauce, Brown Sauce, a British breakfast odyssey in which you tour the country, well, tour the countries, tour the UK. Yeah, very important. (laughs) On bike. (laughs) The components of the country. And effectively eating your way around... um, around the UK, eating breakfast around the UK, on a bike that's named after Eddie Merckx, right? Yeah, exactly. The big pastry fan. Is it? He's mm. a big pastry fan. That's yeah, what he's known that's for. What, that was my inspiration. He said, it's, they're not, it's not the climbs that hurt, it's the pastries. That's like, that <laughs> a professional cyclist after my own heart. Wow, what a legend. Yeah, and he's, a... he's pretty fat now. He doesn't ride anymore. Oh, <laughs> I love him. People probably don't know that Eddie Merckx is like probably the greatest cyclist, Tour de France cyclist yeah. of all time. And a very, cool. very handsome man in his day as well. Yeah. Not that yeah. I'm shallow. But. No. <laughs> and another handsome man. <laughs> Seamless. <laughs> There's the link. Isaac, Isaac Rangaswamy, you are the man behind, I mean, by day, you're a copywriter, but by night, um, you are the man behind uh, the Cafs Not Cafes uh, Instagram account, which is, which is massive. Everyone loves that account. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And you've also written some really brilliant articles for The Guardian, and I'll put lots of links to these things uh, in the show notes. Um, so yeah, calves. Why don't I think we should start by working out what we mean by a calf? Uh, like calf, not a cafe. Isaac, why don't you? Why don't you tell me like what's the <laughs> difference between a calf and a cafe? Uh, I think of it as an inexpensive place to eat that usually sells fry ups, but even the the term itself is one of many. Mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of people call them greasy spoons, but I don't really like that word because it kind of suggests their spoons are greasy. Mm. A lot of people call them cafes, but I think if you're talking about the really historical versions of these inexpensive restaurants, then it can be easier to kind of drill down a bit and kind of talk about a very specific case. Mm. And I find when I'm talking about more of the older ones, that's what I think about when I I use the word caf. Um, But yeah, generally just a place that isn't like a conventional sit-down restaurant that seems a bit fancier, somewhere cheaper that seems to major on kind of fried breakfasts and other cheap food. Would you go along with that, Felicity? Yeah, it's one of those things that if you're presented with something, I think it's very easy to say, no, that's a cafe and that's Mm. a cafe. But to draw it out in the the abstract is a a bit harder. But somewhere that is definitely inexpensive, I think 
is independent and is sort of not so much about the food and drinks served as yeah. the space. Yeah. It's, I mean, it will serve food and drink. And it, I suppose traditionally does do fry-ups, but they're not really the point. Yeah. It's Yeah, it's a very, you know, if it's got tablecloths, it's probably not a calf. Yeah. But <laughs> that's a very specific detail. But that was yeah. quite a good definition. It's basically a place that, yeah, you, you said, Isaac, majors in fry-ups, but is inexpensive. But the food's not really the point, and yeah. Yeah, I mean, it certainly does tea. Yes, yeah, that's so, a good point. Yeah, yeah, hot drinks. It would do inexpensive hot drinks in, a, like, a mug. Yeah. Within the world of calves, there is there seems to be lots of... It's a bit like metal, if you're a metal fan. Probably <laughs> no one is. I am. Uh, there's loads of subgenres, right? Yeah. So there's, like, black metal, there's, uh, you know, fresh metal and all these different things, but they're all kind of still within the gambit. But, you know, uh, gamut? Is that the right word? Gamut? I think so. I think so, yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> uh of of metal um and and calves seem to be they come in all shapes and sizes so there's roadside calves there's yeah. there's like places that like builders go to and then there's places that specialize in like i mean the original ones seem to specialize in coffee right according to some of the research i've been doing isaac you lent me a really brilliant book by a guy called adrian maddox and he's talking about these calves that appeared in the 1950s that were basically like centers of pop music as it as it emerged in popular culture and they were just sell, selling kids coffee right is that there's a kind of lineage from there? Yeah, so. I think that what so a lot of the places I'm interested in seem to in, in seem to predate that period, but there's right. definitely this post-war boom that seems to be associated with this idea of like modernism and these kind of modern fixtures mm. like formica and yeah. these kind of vitrolite ce- uh, ceilings yeah. that seems to have come after the war when kind of the first um, coffee machines kind of arrived in Soho and the kind of arrival of like the idea of a teenager and kind of youth culture. So I can definitely see that association. But then there's places that are similar that seem to be from pre-1945 that have a similar, you know, um, vibe and purpose. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah, interestingly, there is from the reading that I did, and it is frustratingly hard, as it often is with this kind of very unglamorous food and Mm. sort of restaurant um, culture, hard to find evidence, but there's quite a few mentions of things that are called often coffee houses in Victorian London and Liverpool, the big cities. And they did do coffee with their pan. It was awful. But they also did sort of chops and bacon yeah. and eggs. And I mean, it sounds really like a proper greasy spoon. There's always yeah. mention of kind of grease on everything and congealed egg and etc. But they were places that you would go if you were working, men and women. And, you know, the women sometimes had their hair in papers. And, you know, they were they were eating houses for working people. But they're also places that you would go and sit because it was warm and no one was going to bother you, which I think is something that has carried yeah. on to the modern incarnation. So I feel that there's probably a link between definitely. the two. And definitely my mum said, oh, in the 1960s when she was a student, they would go to coffee houses yeah, yeah. in the evening and that was a bit fancy, but she denied that they were calves. Interesting. Right. She felt right. strongly about this. But you're talking about those chop houses. I feel like those must have been just like the first restaurants. And that's one of the things that makes me interested in these kind of places because they seem to predate kind of regular restaurants. They I, seem to yeah. be among the first places where people were eating out. Yeah, I, I think... Working people were eating, yeah. were sitting down to yeah. eat as opposed to street food. And then yeah. at the other end of the scale, you had the, the chop houses yeah. that did the steaks and the yes. oysters and the whiskey and et cetera, et cetera, yes. but less we, greasy. Yeah. <laughs> we've, we've said that calves aren't necessarily defined by 
the food that they give to people. Like they're, they're, you guys seem to be interested in them, especially yeah. you, Isaac, as, as kind of places of conviviality and social spaces. Yeah. Um, nevertheless, like one of the reasons that, and here's my confession, I'm not a massive fan of calves um, because what comes to my mind is like quite bad food. Um, but I'm a snob. I'll admit that I'm just a bit of a snob. Like if I go to one of these calves, and and I have done lots of times in the past, you know, I'm just finding like these like undercooked baked beans and loads of mushrooms and sausages put in a deep fat fryer and like eggs that are a bit like slimy. And I'm like, oh, I don't know. That's and then I get the whole like we'll we'll come on to the social <laughs> social aspects of calves, but I don't know. And I and I was reading about calves, obviously preparing for this, and I came across um, a quote from was it uh, Raymond Blanc? Oh, I think yeah. that's in the book. Yeah, <laughs> it's in the book. Uh, Raymond Blanc. So he's he's a Michelin chef and kind of in some ways like a godfather of lots of Michelin chefs in this country. And it's this brilliant quote, and he's talking about British people. He's saying, "You hate food." This is a very dark country. Blame it on empire. 80% of you are working class and you think it's fantastic to go to some revolting calf and eat something disgusting to endorse your working class status. There's a part of me that thinks like... I think it's something you debunked in some of your other episodes, that well, English food isn't like that. <laughs> yeah. For sure English food isn't yeah. like that and everything's more yeah. complex. And maybe I'm doing a bit of yeah. a devil's advocate here, but yeah. I don't know. Sometimes I do wonder if we've all got Stockholm Syndrome and we love these places even though they serve quite a shit food. I mean, I don't disagree with all of that sentiment. There's a sense in which you don't want the food to be actively bad. And I think that in the calves that I love, they do do things well, yeah. but there's also an element of sort of comfort food to it. And you still don't want your comfort food to be disgusting. Yeah. Um, but there is, in l loving calves does feel a little bit like, you know, embracing some part of national identity, yeah. which goes be sort of above... The food. I'm sure there's stuff in France, Raymond. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> the, the main thing made me think about, I think there's a certain price, price point where you can't really criticise the food. Yeah. If the food is like three quid, particularly now, I think you can't really criticise it. I think there must just well, be... You, a, you can. You can say it's still bad and isn't it a shame that people don't have the money to buy better food? I feel like it's not liking, like, you're saying that it's like kind of not liking a bus stop or not liking a library. <laughs> I think at that point it's like a kind of de facto kind of community or like public space. Well, it's like... Because you can just sit and you can get a cup of tea and you could send, you could spend three hours there. Sure. Do you know what I mean? So I think at that point, it's more about the shelter than the food, kind of like what Felicity said earlier. Mm. And all the places that really got me interested in the first instance were those places. It's a place called Rock Steady Eddies, which I know we talked about and I think you don't like. Mm. But it's at the, in, in Denmark Hill, on the road Denmark Hill in Camberwell. Just above it is uh, Morsley Hospital and King's College Hospital two of London's biggest hospitals, and the same street has a McDonald's, you know, a Cafe Nero, all these other, Greg's, all these other chains. But this place is cheaper than all of those, and it kind of gets the overspill from those two big hospitals mm. and attracts all the kind of, you know, walks of life that pass it, and it just ends up being, you know, like, um, like a shelter more than anything, and it just is a place where people can just hang out and sit down. Yeah, Rockstead Ed is a good yeah. example of kind of what I'm talking about. It's obviously an important community space that like people who've fallen through the net or don't have any other spaces, to, this third space idea that yeah. you brought with me, you know, yeah. like neither home nor work or whatever. Yeah, it's yeah, the yeah. place that they can relax and so on. But I've been in Rockstead Eddie's incredibly hungover once. And you know that like, like opening scene of Withnail and I? 
where the guy is in a cafe and he's like really hungover and he's looking at someone reading the <laughs> you're laughing for this you know what I'm talking about yeah. like someone's reading like the Daily Express or something yeah. it's about some sort of like axe murderer and then he's, that some woman eats an egg with like all the dribbling like yolk coming out and I'm there like trying to like drink this horribly milky tea and I'm ah oh, yeah that's... But then all, all those other people there, then you're saying that they have bad taste, right? No, I'm not Surely that, that. They, they must be something getting something out of that well, experience. This is, this Maybe is... you're in the wrong place, you know? Yeah. Maybe I'm yeah. revealing yeah. too much on this yeah. episode. But yeah. I feel like there's lots of aspects of popular taste yeah. that we don't necessarily have to say are good just because they're popular. Yes. Like, like, like Weatherspoons, for example, right? Like it's yeah, yeah. the most popular chain in the UK. In, the, in, the, in, the pre- in a previous episode, we discussed Weatherspoons. And James Meadway, he's an economist, comes on and he says... You know, like, it might be popular, but that is to some extent symptomatic of a more broken country. The fact that people are using Weatherspoons as a form of shelter, as a place that they can socialise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That shows that something in our social fabric is kind of lacking. No, I agree. No, I think also the weather. Like, if you buy the cheapest lunch available at the moment, it's probably Sainsbury's Local or, like, Tesco Metro, like a meal deal. Mm -hmm. If you buy that and spend £3.50 on a lunch break, you could either take it to your desk if you have a job that has a desk, or you could sit on a bench, or you could like walk around and eat it. What has always interested me about these, about CAFs, is because they fill that gap. It's the very lowest price point where you can eat in, mm. and there's very there's no other real other than like McDonald's or you know these meal deals. This seems to have predated all of those, and it's just was the place people ate their lunch if they were working. You know, and I, I really like that concept. Mm. And the fact that I know that there was a, there was a, um, Ruby Tando wrote something recently about these yeah. spaces like McDonald's that are in yeah. enormous spaces. Yeah. And I feel a little bit, I get what she means totally. And sometimes you want to go into a chain where no yeah. one there really gives a yeah, shit yeah. about anything. Yes. Um, but I think the cafe is different. I'm not yeah. saying that people that work there are always happy in their work, sure. but it's a bit more personal usually yeah. because it's a small business and you're you're seen in a different way you don't sure. feel like you're part, you know you might be seen and judged but you're yes. not you don't pass through an anonymous way I, and yes. i feel a bit like the about the decline of businesses like CAFs. yeah it, i feel similarly about the rise of the self-checkout we just yes. seem to be going into an increasing world where we don't have to interact with anyone no, we don't have to have yeah. any other relationships and it's really easy to go and sit in a McDonald's or whatever. You know, you don't even have to talk to anyone these days when you order. Sound like such a grandma. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that's an important social function of yes. the cafe, even if you don't go for the greasy eggs, you know, just yes. a cup of tea and to feel seen and interact with yes. someone, even if they're quite rude to you, is important. Yeah, I know that I'm coming across as a massive snob and it's, it's probably because I maybe am. Uh, but no, I, I just, I, it's, it's, it's true that massively important community spaces yeah. and, and just because I don't have one doesn't mean that that's not true, not the case. And therefore, like when I do approach these spaces, I get, and, and as a chef, you know, I, I'm yes. interested in food. Exactly. And, and yes. then I'm a bit like, but Isaac, you actually kind of changed my mind about this recently because we went to a place called Scotty's, yes. which the food is legit. Well, I was going to say, so on the cat, we were talking about the different categories of these places. Mm. Definitely the more historical ones and the Italian run ones have always been the ones that have like mm. interested me the most. And I think that subset appear, you know, appears to be generally the ones that have the high quality food and have been family run for multiple generations and are a lot more committed to, you know, the ingredients and have 
more specialities on their menu, like, you know, Scotty's has uh, capoletti and brodo, or chicken escalope with a squeeze of lemon and slices of onion. You know, they really are. I, I, ordered, I once was with a friend, and we both had a chicken escalope each. No, we, we both had a soup each and a chicken escalope to share. And the guy who runs the place came over after we'd ordered and said, I'm going to remove the onion from your escalope you're sharing, because I think it might disrupt the balance of your soups. Dave. You know, because he was worried that we might not have the perfect experience of the soups. And they're, they're, not all cafes are like that, obviously, but yeah. that's, I think those Italian family-run places do seem to have a bit more of a obsession with the particulars, yeah. Mm. Well, let's stick on the food, um, because I, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to the, the nature of cafes, like important social spaces, but if we stick on the food, I mean, Felicity, in your book, Red Sauce, Brown Sauce, um, you're not documenting cafes not, necessarily but you're documenting this symbolic nature of the breakfast the english breakfast the scottish breakfast also the fry and the welsh breakfast i don't know yeah, yeah. um so the british breakfast or the uk breakfast we don't have a good word for that um and uh and yeah it is deeply symbolic and that's kind of and calves are kind of connected to that symbolism right um i don't know could you tell me a little bit about in the ways in which breakfast feels so important to you and also maybe something about the kind of regional differences of of the dish i wanted to write about breakfast just because i wanted to do something about british and northern irish uk food culture and it was so hard we have such a weird Mm -hmm. fucked up relationship with food that it was really hard to think of something that that united I felt united everyone. Mm-hmm. And breakfast seemed to be the one thing that everyone has an opinion on, whether or not they eat meat, you know, whether or not they eat pork, you know, whether or not they eat breakfast, they will have they will have something to say about it. And I found that quite interesting. And actually it feeds into what I think of as a as one of the key characteristics of a calf in that it should it should be somewhere where everyone feels like they can go. So, you know, from middle-class students to, you know, there's some in like, where I am in London where you see, like, barristers going over their briefs to people coming in, taking a break from the building site to old people that have just come in somewhere warm, yeah. you know, somewhere that everyone will feel like they know the know the rules, basically. Um, and breakfast, again, it, it's the same the same thing. But there are... There are still those sort of elbows out differences, certainly with the Scottish breakfast um, and the Ulster fry. But I found the English regional differences probably the most interesting Mm. because they're not really codified in the same way. Everyone in Northern Ireland feels they know what goes on an Ulster fry. But the English one, because England is such a big and diverse country, Mm. there's a lot of argument about whether, you know, what kind of puddings you should have, whether fried bread, you know, the whole hash brown thing, (laughs) um, which I won't go into, um, baked beans, et cetera, et cetera. And and the red sauce, brown sauce, I was um, in my local baker's this morning and a guy came in and ordered a sausage uh, bap and a bacon bap, both for himself champion (laughs) and he said very clearly that he wanted um brown sauce on the sausage and red sauce on the bacon and the woman making them was chatting to me about something and then she had to go over and check with him and he looked at her like she was mad and said well obviously i said you know red sauce goes with bacon duh correct position i think that's interesting because i would go the other way if i if i were going to eat either of those sauces 
I would go the other way. I'm not sure that, yeah, I'm not into it. But I <laughs> can't remember why I got onto that bit. Yeah. But it's one, yeah, it is one of those things. When I've been doing publicity for the book, I've been asking people what their preference is. And these ideas that, you know, the North likes brown sauce and London likes ketchup doesn't hold true. The only thing that I can yeah. see that is a really clear pattern is that younger people are not that into HP sauce. Oh, wow. Um, I think it's other categories of brown. No, they like like ketchup, and I think increasingly they like chilli sauce, which I've got respect for because I like chilli. Yeah. Yeah. As someone that likes mustard and marmalade on my bacon sandwich, I am not someone to come to for the Vox Populi, but... Yeah, I just found it... It's a very interesting... It ties into our national identity in a very interesting way. And I I can't think of any other food and drink that does it quite the oh, yeah, same yeah. way. Yeah. It's also the case that most of Europe, I, I might be wrong here, but a lot of Europe doesn't, a lot of the rest of Europe doesn't really pay much attention to breakfast. Certainly not a plate of like three different types of fried pork or multiple types of fried pork. Yeah. Right. And like, where does that come from? What's the, I mean, that's kind of peculiar to England, right? And it has a specific history that I don't know if you, either of you two want to get into, but. Um, it is, I think it's a, a relatively recent thing that we are alone in it, in that, as far as I could tell, and again, people don't write a lot about breakfast yeah. historically because it was a kind of a meal yeah. that you took in a rush for right. a lot of history. But people did have heartier breakfast because there weren't all of these pastries and local baker shops and et cetera. And you'd be kind of eating leftovers, but there might be, if you were lucky enough to have a bit of meat, you might well have a bit of meat, a bit of cheese, whatever, everywhere in Europe. And then we're sort of left as the rump that are still eating all of these things, but we're richer now so we can afford it. But in reality, actually, very few British people eat that kind of thing on a regular basis for breakfast. Mm -hmm. And yet we still feel really strongly about it. I'd say that surely the vast majority of people go for either cereal or toast in the morning, a far more continental style breakfast. But if pressed, we have the strong opinions about fry ups and we want that. That's part of our identity, even if we don't actually practice. We're like kind of like Anglicans, like we profess a faith, (laughs) but actually we never go to church. We don't do anything about it. It's (laughs) It's like an identity. (laughs) So as far as I can remember that the kind of high age of the breakfast was like the mid Victorian period, right? This is when, kind of the well-to-do, the aristocracy, and then also the middle classes were like really reveling in having these decadent, huge breakfasts yeah. involving fish and offal and lots mm. of... Because I think that that's when the, the, there was enough of a middle class suddenly that yeah. they could afford to not be going into the factory or the office and so they could have a bigger breakfast. Right. Um, but it there was just a huge huge enthusiasm for breakfast there's like yeah. you can find in late victorian books like a hundred breakfast you know ideas but it wasn't it wasn't fry ups other thing that i find interesting is this idea of the fry up as this sort of canonical yeah. dish that has very set ingredients is really recent mm. like definitely almost definitely post first world war and probably i think post second world war Someone needs to fund me to do a PhD on this. But you just do not find it as a dish that people recognise as having set components and rules until this time. Yeah. And yet now we're just like, wow, this is us. This is fish and chips, roast beef, fry up. How? And then, and then Italian people are preparing them for us as well. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I, I, I also, I mean, there's, there's an episode of The Full English on this, the first ever episode about, um, sorry, about breakfast. Um, and I kind of make a slightly speculative claim about, it's kind of, well, it's just interesting the way in which British working classes end up emulating like quite upper class taste from the Victorians. And I think that says something interesting about kind of the people that we are. I don't know. But before, before the Victorians, I think the thing I've only read just unsubstantiated, well, unverified articles on like on the internet. Yeah. But wasn't it like people in the middle age who had loads of meat that they were trying to show off? Should Isn't that part of the story? Like the first, like the earliest kind of cooked breakfast? That's Is it you have all this like, I've got all this pork, I've got all this sausages, I have this, I'm a member of the nobility, come round to my house, yeah. eat my sausages, eat my pork. Yeah, the aristocracy really were like, they had, they had, huge estates and they could show off the wealth of their estates. But it sounds like you've so probably researched this. Well, have you seen any proof for that? Because I've just seen like kind I, of fake looking websites that are saying this. You know? yeah, <laughs> it's, it's the truth. Yeah, it's, yeah. An, it's, it's an interesting idea yeah. that I haven't yeah. come across. Yeah. I think from the historical breakfast menus I looked at, yeah. it was much more kind of joints of meat yes. and big pies and things that we yes. now wouldn't think of as breakfast food. Wow. And just our menu has really shrunk mm. in the last 150 years at breakfast yeah. time. And actually, probably, the, you know, the average Victorian would be a bit disappointed by our fry-up. They'd be thinking, well, where, really? where are my kidneys? Where's my veal pie? Where's my macaroni cheese and yeah. fish and et cetera, et cetera? They'd think it was a really poor thing but definitely bacon and eggs have been eaten for breakfast in this country for a really long time i think there are records of that in yeah. elizabethan cookbooks um but all of the i imagine things like the sausages would have been a bit of a cheaper thing i think okay, the aristocracy probably fine. wouldn't have gone for those you know you mentioned like the chop houses and stuff mm. some you know there's this place called beps in clerkenwell and oh, yeah. someone, you know you can yeah. get like a mixed grill there mm. and then we have like other bits of meat that aren't alongside the fry-up yeah. components. And that always makes me think about a chop house where you were just, I wonder if that if, there, if that kind of evolved from that. Because yeah. you're getting like a lamb chop and you're getting a fried egg and yeah. stuff. I, I'm imagining all those components of meat on a plate seems to be like a proto filling yeah. this or something. Yeah, well, I, my theory is that all of these, the, the chop house would have served these things all day long. Yeah. They weren't specifically a breakfast thing. It was just what yeah. people wanted to eat, these, yeah. you know, bacon and horrible greasy eggs and et cetera, et cetera. And then for some reason they became a breakfast dish, but I don't know why. And I don't know why we lost the chop and not, you know, the sausage or the yes. bacon. Because you don't know, you, mixed grills used to be quite a big deal in menus. Yeah. I think up until like the 80s, like yeah. you might see them and sometimes they come with like a pineapple ring or something. Yeah. They're slightly weird things. Like I'm sure Little Chef must have done them or Bernie Inn or etc. Yeah. You never see a mixed grill anymore in a, yeah. like in a British... It's just like a burger. So it's Red Spoon's yeah. doing mixed grill. Red Spoon's does a, does a, sells a lot of mixed grills. Yeah. Does it? Mm. What oh, is the conventional um, makeup of a mixed grill? I Could you say? It's the, all the things you described. It has the sausage, yeah. the steak, the yeah. lamb chop, maybe some of... The, I actually don't eat that at Weber Spoon's. So yeah. not the guy. Okay, answer, fine. But, but that seems most people when they think of mixed grill. That's kind of what I was thinking about. I sure. To, yeah. Uh, yeah. But yeah, maybe there is yeah. that kind of lineage. And yeah, it is. Does a it come with chips? No. That's don't good. Because okay. <laughs> even so many <laughs> chips aren't allowed chips. on breakfast, which you would know if you read Felicity's book. That's not. That's a no-no. They're allowed if no. you're having a breakfast after midday. That's fine. No, I'll Chris, allow but it's no Chris chip time. Yeah. <laughs> chips for breakfast yeah. <laughs> is a treat. So I mean. Maybe the discussion of chop houses takes us into the kind of history on CAFs that we didn't fully um, map yeah. out. 
Um, by the way, someone should fund Felicity's PhD because there's a lot of open questions there. Uh, so it's definitely there's a, it's it's important. Yeah. It's important work. It's fundamental. Yeah. But since it was just a mysterious period before the Victorian times when nobody knows, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The dark ages yeah. breakfast. Yeah. yeah, all of you scholars out there, uh, if you've got access to any uh, research grants, sling them Felicity's way. Uh, this is of, nas- of the national interest, really. It's true, yeah. Yeah. Um, Calves, though, on the history of calves, are we a bit clearer on, 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 you know, can we even plot a lineage or are they kind of much more chaotic than that? Isaac, that seems to be... Your... Uh, I read another thing, but maybe also unsubstantiated internet thing on the on the website for, like, Wales, just, you know, whales.com. <laughs> Visit Talk, Wales. Yeah, yeah, basically talking about some of the earliest um, Italian-run cafes in the Welsh Valleys. It's talking about this guy called uh, Giacomo Bracci, or Bracci, I'm not how sure we pronounce it, but from one specific mountain town in northern Italy, started as a organ grinder, you know, there's mechanical um, organs, part of the kind of big wave of Italian migration in Victorian times. Apparently he started off in London playing one of his instruments on the streets and then later was recorded having opening one of these cafes in South Wales mm. in the kind of mid to late 1800s or whatever. And then over a period opened a number of businesses also with his name until there was a point then his to until his last name became almost like a byword for these businesses people were just calling them brackies mm. or brachies and there came a point later on where there were lots more italian run cafes in the welsh valleys and it just makes me think you know that kind of network effect if you have an uncle if you have an aunt or you know somebody who's made money doing a certain thing you can see how it just spreads and more people move over so I don't know whether there's anything special about Italian people being better equipped to, to do a hospitality business in that time period. Mm. But it almost makes me think of like a Chinese takeaway or like a curry house today. You know, if you have a connection, some family connection, and it's a proven business model, and you have someone you can stay with or someone you can work for, it must just spread. So that's always been my theory. Mm. But that predates that post-war period. And there are you know, cafes from that time that are still in business in, you know, mining towns. Yeah, yeah there's certainly yeah. There's yeah. waves in the Glasgow in particular, yes. but in Scotland, lots yeah. of Italian-run yeah. Yeah, yeah. proper cafes that, yeah. you know, are still going yeah. strong. But I'm guessing, yeah, yeah, I'm guessing that there's probably, as you say, there's equivalent of late, later waves of migration yeah. from um, China or yeah. uh, the Indian subcontinent yeah. in that there were people that were coming and they were coming from a particular village or they were related and therefore, even if they didn't work in hospitality in those areas, because presumably in a lot of, say, the Italian mountain villages, there weren't really cafes, there weren't restaurants, etc. But this was something that they could do there and could make make money from and they were hard workers as opposed to they come from, you know, families of chefs, etc. Yeah, it's really, it's an interesting... I think that must be it. And I think also immigrants just tend to move into running inexpensive restaurants. There seems to be a low barrier for entry for that kind of work, you know, all over the world. Mm. People just, if you move to a country, the opportunity, one of the easiest ways to run your own business must be that, I feel. That you don't think it comes down to Italians having more of a culture of hospitality? That's what that's what that book says. Yeah. And maybe the, 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 I think there was a big wave in the Victorian times of Italian people moving to Britain. But I think there was another wave post-war when Italian people were kind of rebuilding cities like London that were destroyed by the Blitz. Mm -hmm. And maybe by that point, 
the country. Well, I don't know. I really don't know. But maybe by that point, the country had more of a tradition of running restaurants that made them better equipped to kind of hit the ground running. If you're starting a place in Soho, for example. Yeah, and Brit- and yeah. there was more of a market. Here yeah, for yeah. People had travelled more. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. You know, in the 1950s and 60s, Italian food became very, very fashionable. So they could offer the fry ups in the day, and then they'd also do yeah. your sort of escalops and your yes, pasta and stuff exactly. at lunchtime. That, that explains why you see so many escalops on on calf menus it and spag bol, yes. uh, lasagna, which is like a British, you know, like like a red sauce joint in New York. Right. It's like a mixture of British food and Italian food. Yeah. You know, like Ipolici, that opened like 1901 or whatever. If you lived in East London for 120 years, I suppose you're more Cockney than you are Italian at that point. Right. And then it then it's a beautiful blend of the two where you can like put an escalope on top of your spag bowl because <laughs> yeah. they do shit like that there. Yeah, I think I think a lot of people are familiar with the idea that it was um, it were it was migrants um, from Belgium and Jewish migrants from the Mediterranean that brought fish and chips kind of mm. to the to the to London uh-huh. yeah. and to the rest of the UK. But I don't know if people are that familiar with the idea that the traditional British calf is is also a kind of invention of, of post-war migrants or, or immigrants. Yeah, and also like the components of things like tinned beans, like who even owned, you know, what nationality even could take ownership of mm. just, you know, mass-produced food like that. Mm. You know, it seems almost like factory-made. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't think that the calf itself could be said to be an Italian phenomenon, because yes. I do yeah. think there were things that were serving yeah. that purpose yes. before, but I think that it coincides people having enough money to eat out and having that culture. And I, yes. I don't know whether you've read anything about the British restaurants during the Second World War subsidising sort of national canteens, which gave people right, who know. wouldn't have eaten out previously yeah, yeah, yeah. the idea that actually they can eat out. And yes. it sort of, it it takes the work from the, the woman of the house, basically, yes. and is something that is within their reach. And so when the Italians arrived after the war this there was a market for them yes. in a way that there hadn't perhaps been yes. before that time that just made me remember another thing actually because i know in that same period of like late 1800s italian people who were playing those mechanical organs were also selling those things like penny licks you yeah know, the those, ice cream yeah so i wonder if that's another way in if you're mm. already selling some category of inexpensive food and you're known if you have an ice cream parlor mm. maybe it's easy to adapt and you know, like you were saying, teaching Victorian Edwardian people to eat out. Mm. They're not actually selecting the cuisine. The cuisine already exists, but they're the people who are running mm. the businesses. Mm. That's what it's, yeah, that's kind of how I've always seen it. Rather than a culture yeah. of hospitality, I think, I mean, your com- your comparison with like curry houses is a yeah. good one and Chinese takeaways and so on. Yeah. Um, there might be more of a structural thing where immigrants are kind of locked out from unionized workforces in, in, in working class communities. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm totally speculating here, but imagine you turn up to South Wales where there's loads of mining villages. Yeah. There's a crowd there that's, that's you know, that are hungry. Um, but also, you, you know, you don't have the opportunity necessarily to go and work in the pits yeah. yourself because you're an immigrant and... There, there are several barriers to that. Yeah. And so it seems to be obvious that, or it would, yeah, it would be, that would kind of lend itself to opening um, up hospitality places. Yeah, sure. that makes that yeah. sense. Yeah. So we've got, we've got some speculative theories about the history of cafes. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, is there yeah. anything else that we're kind of missing on that? Like about the kind of evolution of cafes? I mean, because we, we've, we, we've, we've gone into the kind of 
Victorian origins of the breakfast and um, yeah. the chop houses. And at, at some point, there does emerge this this freakazoid meal. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, you also mentioned like formica tables and and like nailed down furniture. There yeah. is a kind of an aesthetic to a cat. I think that's a post-war thing. So yeah. I think that in that same in those same books, they both mention, you know, London is like and loads of other British cities completely fucked because of the Blitz. Just these like pockmarked cities. But then I think in the 1950s, the government took that as an opportunity to kind of introduce this modernity, you know, the Festival of Britain, mm-hmm. you know, celebrating all these like innovative things that seemed really flashy then, like Formica and, you know, these colourful things. I'm trying to think of other examples, but you know, like things that look shiny and with bright colours. Yeah, that's a Yes, exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah. I think that is a big part of it. Mm-hmm. And I think those are those, that's also what I associate with what you said about them being these kind of people who like music hanging out in these places. They're kind of like a hip place to be mm. if you're like a young person in the 1950s. But a lot of those places remained unchanged. And some still, up until the 90s and 2000s and today. But I feel like maybe the generation before mine got a bit sick of them in the 90s and early 2000s. You know, if you want to move into the whole, like, why are they declining thing? Mm. That seems to be the tipping point. The kind of, mm. just from those books being published in 2004-ish. And that being when the coffee you know, the coffee house chains emerged, like Café Nero Costa, etc. I think it seems to have coincided maybe with the kind of baby boomer generation falling out of love with them, is yeah, my one thing. But I don't know if it's, uh, there's so many other things, but that's one thing I sense. One of the things that I find interesting yeah. is that the coffee chains, say Café Nero yeah. or Starbucks or Costa, they have this myth of them being the same space yes. you know they have armchairs they yeah. have sofas etc <laughs> but actually they're not they don't feel the same even though the calf is often feels specifically designed to be uncomfortable yes. and to sort of <laughs> you know very bright lighting yes. very hard seating and the really classic ones i think probably looked a bit like pie and mash shops in that yeah. you get those benches basically yeah. that turn your bum numb yeah. um and white clean tiling but actually I don't feel that you can sit for the same in the same way in a chain cafe as you can in a, yes. a proper greasy spoon. I think so. It doesn't because it is it feels a much more transactional relationship. You know, yes. if you don't go and buy a coffee every, you know, yeah. 45 minutes, then maybe it's in my mind, but I don't. No, <laughs> I totally feel sort of this. like I'm not welcome there. Mm. The owner won't greet you by name. No. If you've been a lot of times. Yeah, well, you won't, do, you won't they, do. they ask yeah. your name and then they write it down on the cup and then they say... Lewis! True. Maybe because of the turnover of stuff on a day-to-day level. You know, you're not going to see the same yeah. proprietor whose mum and dad ran the place or it's, grew up it's working faceless, there. It's faceless, yeah. Yeah. But just sticking with the... Yeah, the, sorry. The, no, no, it's fine. But sticking with the calf um, aesthetic, uh, Felicity, in your definition of a calf, um, the, to the, the calves that you've seen in, on your travels, on your odyssey around the UK, do they all look the same? Do, the, is there kind of an essence they definitely don't all look the same. They, I mean, it depends on their age often. Mm. So you get everything from the university cafe in Glasgow, which is just a real sort of classic of the genre, I think was opened maybe shortly after the Great War. And, you know, it doesn't feel Edwardian inside, but it's Mm. got a sort of ageless quality, like wood panels and bonquette seating and, you know, loads of stuff on the walls everywhere. Very cluttered. And then right up to um, 
one of the closest cafes to me opposite Pentonville Prison, the breakout, <laughs> um, which is, you know, very high ceilings, but sort of feels a bit like a like a school hall or something. Like it's yeah. very strip lighting. I'm guessing probably nine, 1990s yeah. or noughties sort yeah. of, you know, those what I think of as like McDonald's or little chef chairs, like yeah. the plastic bucket seats that, are, you know, attached to the floor. Um, and it's not cosy in the same way as yeah. the university cafe is, but yeah. they both... They both feel utilitarian, but with a but individual. They don't yes. have that sort of. They've been created by a marketing department somewhere, mm. and they've always got that. Quite often, got that quirky thing of like local characters on the wall or the foot, you know, the football team yeah. or whatever. You know, there's a bit of personality yes. there yeah. that you're never going to get in a cafe nearer. That's lovely. Yeah. <laughs> People always talk about um, cafes are like on the decline. They're like disappearing from our high streets, and I think what they or, you know, disappearing from our towns. And I think what they mean by that is the kind of classic calf that we've been talking about, yeah. this post-war yeah. calf that, yeah, you know it when or you see it. Or indeed pre-war, sure. But this, especially this kind of like formica table yeah. place yeah. that's like normally ran by an Italian family at some point, yeah. um, or a Greek family, yeah. um, which we haven't talked about. But um, And so when people are saying these places are dying out, I think they really mean those. But if we have a more expansive definition of calves to just include places that are welcoming of everyone yeah. as long as you can afford the cheap breakfast that they serve, yeah. um, then is it true that they're dying out? I'd like to see some, like, national statistics so I could actually, like, basis in fact. But we like, need a minister for cash. Yeah, but, but anecdotally, <laughs> yeah, you're talking about the breakout as an example. Where I live in Brockley, there's three or four places like that. Yeah. And just from or, all the other neighbouring towns, you know, parts of, like, like Lewisham or Catford or... Deptford or Newcross, mm. all have a number of places like that, which will be very 90s interior and these other things you mentioned. And on that basis, I don't feel like these more modern, like Blair and Thatcher years ones, or maybe even more recently, are under threat. But I also feel like a lot of those may be also historical ones underneath that have been had their fixtures and fittings changed, uh, fixtures and fittings changed, a new sign put in front of an old one. But yeah, the, definitely my primary interest is those really historical ones, and those are definitely phasing out. But there's another thing I would say, because I'm talking about the kind of suburbs, or, or at least like Zone 6 of London or whatever, I feel like there's also this idea that the centres of the cities have, you know, changed so much. Soho used to be like such a hotspot, and to be this kind of, you know, used to be Little Italy, and have a lot of these super historical places that... We associate with this post-war period, but now if you go to central London, it's all these like, you know, the candy shops, so many more of the, the, the coffee house chains. So I also think there's an, there's an element of the, the places in the centre of cities disappearing too. Mm. You know, now that rents are, I guess it's mm. rents are higher in the centres of town and it's, a chain is more likely to afford, if a landlord wants to raise the rent, a chain is more likely to meet that threshold or some kind of commercial let like an office, I can definitely see that being a possible scenario unfold. Yeah, I definitely yeah. agree that probably the rent must be one yes. of the primary problems yeah. as opposed to the lack of demand. Yes. But I do also worry that, A, people are getting used to a more impersonal experience yes. yeah. and wanting it. And I guess I should say the people should have what they want, but for me it is slightly 
Yes. I can't see it as in a wholly positive trend. No, I hear you. But also, um, I was talking to a friend recently um, who's got a building business, and he said, you know, the guys, we all used to go and have a... Um, we used to go and have breakfast together as part of, you know, the day we'd travel in the van, we'd yeah. go to site, we'd go for breakfast. And he said, nowadays, you know, I can't think if we just go to the McDonald's drive through or we go to Greg's or I don't know how many people sit down for lunch, breakfast or lunch in the same way. Yeah. And yeah. he said, oh, I really miss it because yeah. there is that aspect of asking about people's lives yeah. and getting to know new people and et cetera yeah. that you just don't. Don't get, and I mourn. I mourn the fact that there's no, there's very few places in our cities these days where people can go and afford to go and sit down and take that time. And I'm sure it's, you know, it's working culture as well as change. It's not just because of the chains and the rents, but it does seem sad. I think for for me, I I I started off by talking, expressing my food snobbery, Um, but I mean, I I also. I mean, I'm I'm not sentimental about calves because I mean I've never really spent any time in them, sure. and I'm and and the historical ones that you talk about, for me, would be cool if they stayed open as kind of museums. But you can't expect businesses to live on with the with with the clientele having disappeared, and you know, and the aesthetic remaining the same. Like things have to change. But I would say that it does seem to me a great loss to 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 not have community spaces such as these. And there are massive pressures on there not being these spaces, which would seem to me to be high rents, mm-hmm. uh, people not having much money, and 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 this kind of social shift that you've just explained, Felicity, um, that where people do seem to favour anonymity. And whether that's just something, if, if that's the product of, um, you know, Greg's brilliant marketing strategies to make us grab a sausage yeah. roll and a coffee and run away with it, or is it the product of our fast-paced um, working lives? I don't really know. I don't know if anyone has the answer to that. There's so many exceptions to those rules as well, which is weird. And now I've, I've spent so much time trying to draw attention to these places because that's what I got interested in, that I go to these places that I found fascinating. You talk about, the, about living museums, that's what drew me to them. Mm. And then it'd just be empty was why people were walking past these places. But there's also places like the Regency Cafe in Ipilici have huge queues outside them constantly. You know, they've become like tourist hotspots. And I don't, I mean, I haven't seen their like, you know, uh, financial kind of data, obviously, but it seems like they're not under threat. You know, they seem busy. And those are two of the oldest in, in London. Mm. So I also think there's a phenomenon where they can get touristified, perhaps at the detriment of the crowd. But like Regency Cafe, every time I go in there, there's loads of like civil servants there because it's mm. right by Horseberry so Road. There's a guy reading the racing yeah. posts on his yeah. own and etc. Like oh, I love yeah. that, it, that it feels like it ought to be very touristy and shit. And yet, actually, I think they do a really decent yeah. fry up and they do bubble and squeak, yeah. which is my number one London breakfast thing. Yeah. And they have a great big tea urn, which yes. really, you know, actually, it's along with the tablecloth, a tea urn is a really good sign in a cafe. Yes. Yeah. But yeah. also as a crowd, it's I never... Cute. There's, like, like the home offices near there and, like, other civil service offices. I never think of that as, like, the typical crowd of, like, a place like that. But it works because it has this captive audience. You know, there's, like, a group of workers nearby, among many others, like, cab drivers and stuff. Go a lot. Used to go to that place a lot, and there's another place down the yeah. road, Astral Cafe, because yeah. it's easy to park around there, and there's like a urine around there. Mm. You know, you can see these places can sustain mm. if they have a captive. And they're cheaper audit. than Pret a Manger. Precisely, and the guy remembers your name. Five yeah. branches <laughs> yeah. down there. And yeah, 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 yeah. 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 I mean, so I think they can survive. 
So, what, so yeah. one of the ways they are surviving clearly is by kind of making themselves into the living museums, even yes. if they do have a real life, like that people use them in an authentic yes, way. Agree, yeah. But another way that they maybe are surviving yeah. is in these kind of gentrified manifestations. And the place I want to talk about is Norman's, <laughs> which I don't know, loads of listeners probably won't know, is, is this... It, it's, how would you describe it? It's kind of slightly ironic, tongue-in-cheek version of a calf that is, seems to be marketed at the Instagram generation that exists in North London. And I've been, and I thought the food was great, to be honest. Um, again, food snob. But I just thought they were doing all of the things that you get on a classic calf menu, but they did it really quite well with a bit of, you know, the old crunchy salt and stuff. I was like, this is so up my street. But I don't know what you, I mean, how... What, that could become a thing, um, and maybe it already is a thing. Do you have any thoughts on that? It's not the old one surviving. That is a new place open that's but it's, it's using kind of, the cues of the previous places. Yeah, but yeah. it's kind of, you know, carrying the flag for a new generation. The thing that I thought that makes me anxious, and I've got nothing wrong, I've got, <laughs> I've got nothing wrong with more expensive ingredients and, like, making a breakfast that has, you know, more luxurious components... But if the interior is kind of drawing on something that the new place isn't, and that old place would attract, you know, an, old, an elderly person who would feel comfortable in that space, mm. and then they no longer feel comfortable in the, you know, the slightly sanitized version, then I think you should, might as well just serve a really nice full English breakfast. You mm. don't need to have the... The past interior, precisely, yeah. Cosplaying Yes, cast. yeah. yeah Are they cosplaying though? Because it's, it's a calf. It's it's they've they the guys that run it like by their own account they like calves and they made a calf and they happen to be really successful on Instagram. I don't, for me, I mean, I'm I'm all for better ingredients. Yes, in that, yes. one of my problems is that I love calves, but I also don't like eating meat that I don't that I don't feel com- I could yeah. afford. But I could afford an animal that lived better than yeah, that, and therefore yeah, yeah. I quite often go for sort of baked beans on toast or yeah, whatever because yeah. I just like the whole cafe vibe yeah. but I'm lucky enough that I can go for free range pork etc and so I'm very in for places that are doing these things well and using using um meat that has lived a better life but I just maybe it's because it's so popular on Instagram and it's sort of a victim of its own success in the way that that's destroyed the cafe vibe because it's so busy you can't sit there for hours, you know, reading the paper or doing your Sudoku or chatting to your mate or just staring into space watching people. You are going to, someone's going to come and hit you if you take up your place. People are staring at you when you're trying to finish your fry up. And that's not the CAF vibe. So for me, welcome it. But it is definitely a cafe rather than a CAF. I think the food is the point there yes. and you're not you know yes. Norman's is a cafe not there. a cafe well, yeah that's and that's about not a bad thing I like a cafe yeah. as well yeah, but yeah. it serves cafe food but it's, a, it's that's a good because we're coming it's full circle we're coming vibes. back to the definition of cafes and I think for you guys definitely seems to centre so much on the space right I think so one primary thing for me is the way cafe could be confused with a coffee shop yeah. and I don't think of cafe as a coffee shop that's always one thing I've thought in my mind when I think of a cafe I think of somewhere where you can get a pastry Mm-hmm. or espresso and that's why i've felt like it's a helpful distinction and it should yeah. be i think yeah. that also this should you mentioned that you weren't sure that you know maybe a local um elderly person would yeah. feel that norman's was for them yeah. and i do think that 
a CAF should really feel like it's got the people that are, you know, coming in and sitting and doing a Daily Express crossword or whatever, yeah. and maybe some school kids that come in to get a bacon bowl on their way to school. Yes. And, you know, it really should feel like it's for all age groups. And there's such, so few places on our high streets that, are, that elderly people can go exactly. into. Like, there's loads of chicken shops for young people, but yes. you don't tend to see many old people in the chicken totally. shops. Totally. And so. my, my greatest fear is there could be a place around the corner from Norman's that is really old and that is really struggling and now is getting less footfall as a result mm. because of more, you know, somewhere else is taking a similar, some of the, I don't, yeah. No, that yeah. makes sense. I yeah. mean, I, I feel like Norman's is probably the calf for the kind of footloose metropolitan people like me. Who have uh, yeah, I mean, it's community. entirely designed with people like me in mind and I'm not, I'm definitely not against it, yes. but it's not, I wouldn't go there if I felt the need of the sort of soul balm of a calf, that they're too... Like like going to a cafe is almost something more emotional than yeah. than um, culinary. For well, me. let's let's end on this. Um, if we did want to go for the soul bomb uh, experience, <laughs> which is a lovely phrase, uh, where would you guys recommend? And ideally, um, if you could name a couple of places that weren't in London, would also be great. Um, which might be for you for this, but um, but also just your just your well, you favorite cafes uh, in general. You mentioned University Cafe earlier, and I absolutely love that place. It's so cool. Yeah. You know, they talk about yeah. the fixed seats, and yeah. you know they're like the ones that flip up, like in football stadiums. Yeah. I've never seen anywhere else. That and I'll they play. do high vis offers. Like, I just <laughs> yeah, really? love that. Yeah, if you're probably working on the roads, then you're going to get a oh, discount cool. on yeah. your macaroni, cheese, and chips. Um, definitely University Cafe in Glasgow is really lovely, and they do great ice cream actually as well. The Italian tradition. Um, and the Bourneville Cafe in Birmingham. Um, it was really hard to find good cafes in Birmingham. So many of them seem to have closed down. Mm. But the Bourneville Cafe is the real deal. It shuts at three o'clock, which is the sign of a proper cafe. You know, you are there for your breakfast and your lunch. You're not having your tea as well. Because <laughs> uh, you mentioned Glasgow. I went to Glasgow a couple of times. Both times I went to University Cafe and this other place called Val Doro, which I know mm. you went to. But like, it says it opened in 1875. And I don't know how, how that's even possible, <laughs> but it's so old and it's like more of a chip shop than a, than a calf. But it's like really bright, red interior. You know, you mentioned earlier those like fixed seating that's a bit high or like a bit uncomfortable. It's the highest fixed seating I've ever seen and very thin seats. It's just a really dramatic interior. And I'm always interested in chip shops where you can eat in. I always think of chip shops as being takeaways, but this has like 30 seats in it. And it has all the weird Scottish, you know, chip shop things. <laughs> like you can get, a, you know, like a pizza crunch with like deep fried pizza. And if you get curry sauce with your fish and chips, the chips come ready covered in curry sauce, like mm. it's bechamel or something. Wow. <laughs> and it's like lighter. Uh, it's really nice food, very cheap. Um, I really like that place. Another one outside of London that I've, I've written about um, is uh, Sands Cafe in Liverpool, which is just fascinating because it's like Liverpool's history is like a port town and this old merchant navy company called the, the Blue, um, Blue Funnel Line that went from Hong Kong and Shanghai to Liverpool. And this guy who grew up in Sichuan, you know, Western China, joined the, you know, the Navy in the 50s and 60s or whatever Ended up in Liverpool after that, opened this place to feed dock workers mm. in the heart of the, you know, the Docklands of Liverpool, which is now, you know, doesn't really exist, but it's still there. He died, his wife took over. The food they serve is a mixture of fire-ups and stuff, but also Chinese food, but it's Cantonese food, not Sichuan, like, more like what you get in a Chinese takeaway. 
but it's just a fascinating mix of these things, yeah. Mm. Brilliant, and yeah. and we mentioned Scotty's in London, oh, yeah, which yeah, now yeah. is my favourite place to go yeah. in, in Clerkenwell. Um, Isaac, Felicity, thank you so, so much. Uh, super interesting conversation. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you.